Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Try a B sharp and a C seventh diminished. Thank you very much, Anthony. River, brow river, long river deep. Fish walk by, turtles play on sand of glass. She is near, I feel her ghost, her hair of sheen across her back. Where am I? I am near. Washing my feet in a glass of beer. Oh, thank you. That's... Just what it means to washing my feet in a glass of beer. Oh, thank you. The man's a genius. Fantastic mind. Good evening, Jenna. How are you? I'm pretty good. Excited to do another Top Ten episode. 1961. This is exciting. It's a pretty good year. <laughs> you sound excited. There's actually, well, I mean, there's definitely some major faves of mine from this year. So that's exciting. It'll be exciting to to compare top tens because I have a feeling that they're going to be, as per normal, the same movies, but in a very different order. Yeah, I always think that we've covered a lot more amazing movies on this podcast than we have. I was, like, coming up with my top ten and I realized, oh, shit, I can't put, like, your Jimbo. Yeah. <laughs> Or a Lola or Il Posto or Through a Glass Darkly or Breakfast at Tiffany's or The Hustler because we haven't covered any of them. Yeah, why don't you, let's talk about how this top 10 works. So this is our, we used to do Kiss, Mary Kill and uh, now we are doing top 10, which is basically Kiss, Mary Kill without the kill, right? It, we're, we're a movie that we're going to try that that we've you know is is heard to have been a, a top movie of that year and something we've always been wanting to watch a movie that we know and love and a bit of a wild card something that we think might end up on our top 10 but we're not totally sure yeah i i usually go for something that strikes my fancy because of a poster or or something but uh, i don't know much about you know, I do kind of miss the kill aspect of this. Bad movies are fun to talk about. We'll have to maybe next time through pick movies that we suspect we're going to hate because I just I don't watch bad movies for pleasure. So I, I run out of things that I want to kill. I have always been a champion of the kill. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I mean, because half here, my thing is that like there are plenty of movies that are it's very rare. I'll put it this way. It's very rare that I watch a movie that I think is just completely bankrupt of all positive anything. You know what I mean? Like just completely morally bankrupt. And like, usually there's something that's interesting about this, whether it's like a performance or like a set or the plot, even, you know, there's usually something that works about a movie. That's like interesting enough to watch. And maybe the pacing's terrible or, the plot's terrible or, you know, there's something, there's always like stuff that's terrible. It's interesting to, to break down what it is that I don't like about it. But then it's also interesting to just see like, shoot, like this could have been really good except for this one or two or five or 10 things. <laughs> and that's what I like to watch, you know, like that's what I'm curious about. 
it's pretty rare that I think a movie is just like not at all worth anybody's time ever. I enjoy watching bad movies. It's when I watch a bunch of movies that are bad in the same way in a row that I get a little upset. And, you know, I just there's so many great movies, movies that I know that I have to see that I haven't seen yet. Why spend my time on some rote genre exercise when I can watch something that a number of critics have told me, yeah, this is doing something a little interesting. I feel like this is the one place where our age difference really is pronounced. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I don't have time on this planet enough to watch these shitty movies. Yeah. Of course, I always felt that way, even when I was a teenager. Gotta watch the good stuff. There's too much good stuff to watch, and I gotta watch it all. See, that's as a teenager I would you would have had to tied me down to make me watch something terrible but now I'm like yeah let's do it mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so who's beginning this episode I think it's me I think you began the 1960 top 10 so uh, I'll, I'll begin our journey into 1961 with my kiss pick which is a difficult life I think it's better known by its uh, its Italian title, but you'll have to say that. Una vita difficile. And it's a Dino Risi film, you know, the guy who did uh, Il Sorpasso. Uh, and he's just a very prolific commedia alla italiana director. I haven't seen a ton by him. And that was one of the reasons I picked this movie. It's hugely beloved in Italy, not particularly well known in the US, in you know, outside of Italy. And uh, I think... After watching it, I kind of understand why, but I thought it was great. It starts during World War II, the end of World War II, and our our hero Silvio is a uh, a communist, a a man of the people, an educated man, but he's uh, he's he's very much a populist, and uh, he's fighting with the partisans uh, after the the king has fled to the south. So he's fighting Nazis in northern Italy. Uh, when he is uh, separated from his group and is looking for a, a safe place to hide out, when he finds this hotel, he he wants the them to host him because uh, you know they're they're Italians and they should be supporting the, the partisans fighting to to protect their land and um, and they're they don't want to but he decides to hide out there anyway and uh, a German soldier finds him and the young woman uh, the the daughter of the people who run the hotel ends up killing the uh, the Nazi with an iron to protect Silvio. They bury the body, and he runs off. She says, uh, oh, I have a place where I can hide you in this, in this old mill that, that doesn't get used anymore. And uh, so he hides there, and she comes to, and, uh, and they live together in this mill for you know, however long, three months or something. And, uh, you know, they have a little romance, but Silvio is... Uh, you know, impatient to get back to the war effort because he is, he's a real patriot and believes in the cause. He's very attracted to Elena, uh, Le Masari, 
but she doesn't have a political conscience. They have a sexual relationship, and that's about it. So he, you know, in the, in the middle of the night, he hears some of his partisan uh, cohorts nearby and, and joins back up with them and leaves leaves her without saying goodbye and, you know, finishes out the war and uh, ends up back in Rome where he's writing for a communist newspaper. He ends up going back to this town several years later to this town where Elena is and decides to meet up with her because, you know, he misses her. And she's pissed off, but, uh, you know, still wants to escape her small town and goes, goes, agrees to go back to Rome with him. And uh, they, they live in poverty for a while. And, you know, basically we're just going through the whole history of Italy from the end of World War II to the present, 1961. You know, it's sort of a, I don't know, I hate to call it a, a Forrest Gump type thing, but that's basically what it is. We're sort of seeing all the events that are happening, uh, you know, Italy turning into a republic and, and uh, you know, all, all of these events that are happening in Italy from, you know, in those, you know, 15 years through, through the perspective of these two characters. And, um, you know, Silvio is, uh, who's played by Alberto Sordi. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. And uh, he, so he's, you know, an idealist and he, you know, an educated idealist. And he does it, he, even though there's no money in, in his, uh, him continuing to, to be a journalist and fight for his causes, especially, you know, more and more as, as Italy has an economic boom and it's uh, the wealthy are running the nation. There's less space for someone like him. So it's it's all about him, you know, deciding whether he wants to sell out and he he really doesn't want to even though Elena they eventually have a child together and she wants him to just get a real job and support the family and uh they don't see eye to eye on that and they separate but then come together. You know, it's a it's an episodic kind of film and uh it's you know, it's made up of a, a variety of scenes that are really, you know, kind of standalone and are really entertaining. Uh, one, one of my favorites is when shortly after Elena has moved to Rome with Silvio, he's been getting free meals from all the restaurants and they won't uh, won't feed them on credit anymore. So they're, you know, they have nothing to eat. And uh, an old duke that uh, Elena knew from her town uh, invites them to this, this grand meal at his... Uh, you know, his aristocratic family and, you know, Silvio kind of bites his tongue and, and doesn't want to say anything uh, so they can get a, a nice fancy meal, even though this is the night where they're voting whether the Italy's going to be a republic or a continue to be a monarchy. And, of course, these aristocrats are all pro-monarchy. And when, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great set piece. It's a sort of a dark comedy. And, you know, it's about following your beliefs and, and selling out for personal comfort. And I enjoyed it, but I also think that it deals with events that are very you know, specific to Italy and an audience outside of Italy might not appreciate the, the drama of some of the national events that it depicts, but it's still, still a great watch. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was excited to watch this one too since I love this period of Italian film specifically it feel it's like this is the exact kind of satire and and humor that just always tickles me so it's just like thrilling to finally watch this one which i had heard so much about 
And I think that, you know, I love you. You kind of weirdly blew my mind with the Forrest Gump comparison. I'm like, that's so true. Like, why don't we don't really do that as often in like American film is to like kind of like walk us through this these decades in this way and like so specifically on the nose. Do we? Am I like totally spacing? Yeah, I can't think of too much, but I, I think Forrest Gump just did it so famously that that's my main point of reference. And there, there are probably some other things I could have pointed to that are a little more respectable. Yeah, like Forrest Gump's so on the nose. Like, and that's, that's what everyone is mm-hmm. now, you know, makes fun of it now for is like just being, you know, like also having a, a clear, like liberal slant to it, which is funny because like the, this movie is, is really the same exact thing. And like, you know, it uses this kind of like personal anecdotes like that dinner scene, which is really fun to watch. I mean, like it's it's like basically the kind of story it's like the best of a dinner story from a friend. You know what I mean? Like it's the kind of thing you want to hear about, like, oh, my God, I was pulled into this meeting with all of these monarchists and I'm a like staunch communist, <laughs> you know, like that that kind of stuff is just like it's inherently amusing because you're always having dinner with with monarchists. It's just like that. That's like the best of a story you hear in a bar. You know what I mean? Like this sort of like this is such an absurd situation. And like me, the worst possible person who could have been in this. This is the worst possible situation kind of kind of a story. And like that's kind of what this whole movie chugs along in. It's like there. it's just it, too many sort of coincidentally uh, ironic situations. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, obviously, you know, it's like, it's fun it, because everything is ironic. It, you know, it all sort of like shakes out to being, uh, you know, feeling still truthful and not feeling too on the nose. Like in, in, in the way I think that if the, you know, the most generous reading of, of Forrest Gump is, you know, where it's like, yeah, none of this is really possible, but like, you know, it, because it, everything is, is like this coincidence then it all kind of like, you know, shakes out to, to feel even. I don't think we're we're selling anybody on this movie by continually comparing it to Forrest Gump, but no, uh, you really yeah. you blew my mind with it, man. I was like, shit, you're right because, but it's true. But it's like the Italian versions are so much better. I will say for sure that that they're genuinely far more cutting and far more complex than Forrest Gump ever was. And and that was what I was gonna about to say was that my favorite part of this is it's like basically it's that it's a great leftist satire of leftist politics, and you know, and in, in sort of pointing out. Yeah, because like right like who's better to point out all the flaws uh, of of leftists than than more leftists like you know the the most infighting group of all <laughs> yeah. uh you know the very which, problem with leftism I, I guess exactly which you know i say i say as as a member but like it it's pretty much uh you know like in in to sort of show these um not only like, you know, taking you through this history from a leftist point of view, but but what's more interesting is just showing like this this character, you know, about like a, a man who cares so much about his country that he treats everyone around him like shit. You know, it's like this idea that like you're so morally pure and that you're so on the side of righteousness that like you're you like lose your humanity, which is something that uh, is just like so true and uh you know not really talked about often enough we don't have enough of these characters usually when when a character is like this and they they give their whole life to the cause we we romanticize them half the time so it's fun to kind of see the other side of this like the reality of this which is which is what is the case for all of them you know like that that if you're going to try and like um you know set yourself up as a hero of of the revolution then you you know you are going to inevitably disappoint the people that that want you as a friend or a lover or whatever. 
Uh, so, you know, that's the best part of this for me. Like when, whenever, you know, Alberto Sordi, like, especially towards the end, he starts to become this kind of like misanthropic drunk and he's just sitting there, you know, there's a great scene where he's just screaming at cars. Like he's just drunkenly walking down the middle of a highway and just like spitting at every car that passes him and like telling them like, don't come to Italy. It sucks. You know, (laughs) like just, just totally like, you know, losing his mind. Uh, after he's already alienated his wife completely and and she's since uh, moved into like a slightly more capitalist state of mind uh, like in sort of inevitably you feel for her just because of the fact that she has like you know children and she needs to help support her family and and her husband is a basically a 'er ne'er-do-well who's too busy uh, with the cause so you know, like that, that kind of stuff I thought was, was interesting. And it gives you the exact kind of nuance that helps ground a movie. That's really, as you said, about taking you through decades of Italian history. The biopic version of this movie would, as, as you were saying, like it would glorify this hero of the people, but, and then it would also say, but you know, his home life suffered. He didn't treat his wife as well as he should have. And this movie sort of flips that idea. It's like, it doesn't concentrate so much on his successes but how what a mess his home life is because of his commitment to his cause and that's where the satire comes in sort of flipping that narrative and just how you know how hard it is to stick to your ideals in in this world like he's you know he doesn't a little bit of a spoiler but he doesn't uh, always he 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 eventually sells out a little bit but uh, you always admire him for wanting to you know continue fighting and and pushing to to make Italy the ideal place, you know, a, a place for the people and not for the rich or the, the aristocratic. And uh, so you're never not on his side as far as that goes. But he does come off for a majority of the movie is a schmuck because he treats his wife um, and his friends so poorly because he's so committed. Right, exactly. And I mean, there is actually even when when he is selling out, like yeah, as you said, like the there the the finale of this never is betraying the cause. Like there there's it's definitely a, a solid you know leftist cinema, but yeah, it's also pretty it's pretty starkly aware of of the shortcomings. <laughs> uh, I mean, and and you know you get that so much through through Leia Masari who plays his wife, and and she does so well in this. I was so like surprised just because. The character doesn't really have that much to her. She's like this long-suffering wife. She gets left. You know, it's always that like he kind of uses and loses her. And she is always um, idealistic enough to keep coming back to him and expecting the best. And, you know, they never she she despite the fact that she's not like she's a main character. But I mean, he's really it's really all about sorority. There's really. He's the the number one character the whole thing is told through. And so, like, you know, she is definitely, I would call her really more secondary. And and when we see her, it's only through, uh, you know, whenever he sees her. But we get, like, so much out of her just as an actor. I mean, like, I think she just really, like, the the, the acting that she has here, like, just, like, the the look she gives him, the the way that she delivers the the few lines that she really has I mean like she really kind of blew me away in this I think I thought that she really added like a, a really interesting complexity especially in comparison to Sorty who I I like Alberto Sorty a lot but I feel like he he kind of when he gets into comedy he's playing like the same dude all the time which is a little bit of this like kind of like drunken buffoon uh you know disillusioned you know with rage kind of guy 
you know, and, and he plays it super, super well. So I'm not trying to knock him, but it, it is just like, you know, it's nice to have someone who's really playing this sort of straight man to, to his like more overtly silly, you know, performance. Yeah. Because she really brings out, she she amplifies, you know, all the, the truth of, of both what he's doing and then also the situation. Yeah, like a lot of what she, her, her biggest scenes involve her being fed up with his idealism and saying, you know, you've got to think about, you know, the family. Her realism is, you know, set against his idealism. And she's, in a way, kind of the antagonist because he is you know resents her for continually trying to get him to like settle down and get a real job the latter half of the movie he's trying to get his uh his degree in architecture and become an architect and is really just you know hopeless and you resent Leia Masari and her mother for forcing him to do this but at the same time, she's such a sympathetic character, and it's you know, without having to do much, she carries a lot of weight with her performance. And I think it's also, I'm used to seeing her as like a bored, wealthy woman. I mean, mainly I'm thinking of her as the disappeared girl in La Ventura. And I, and, uh, and I think she does a bumpkin character really well. And Sorty, I'm sort of used to playing a kind of a dummy, like this sort of family man who's, who's put upon, and uh, to have him play this intelligent, educated guy who really believes in something is that that's a bit of a change of pace too. So I don't think he's playing exactly the same character he usually does in this, but I, I think it works for both of them. Yeah. Don't be turned off by our comparisons to Forrest Gump. It's way more <laughs> of a, a, you know, a, a classic example of Commedia alla Italiana. And uh, it's a good one. I mean, Commedia all'Italiana, which we'll we'll be talking about also in a second here when we get to my favorite, uh, you know, one of my 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 Mary pick for uh, this round, and um, also I think just like I don't is this can we I would almost call it like the Cinema sixty like preferred era of cinema. Yeah, I, if we could do all Italian satires, we would be thrilled. On this show, I, I think we would, <laughs> but we don't want to bore anybody. <laughs> Well, my kiss for for this round uh, was the guns of Navarone. Directed by J. Lee Thompson. And starring a whole bunch of people you've heard of. And I'll, I'll list them in a second here. This is one of those movies. I like war movies. This is a this is a genre that, that Bart does not like. <laughs> it's more of an adventure movie than a war movie anyway. But it is set during the war. That, that's that's the best kind of war movie. The, the war movies that are about the humanity behind the war is my, my favorite kind of a war movie. And like these sort of weird little one-off, you know, it's almost, yeah, like kind of a spy mission that they're on. Um, so, I mean, there's really quite a bit about this that I thought sounded really appealing. And, and it was something that I've always heard good things about. I had never seen, I had never sat down to watch. It's long. It's like three hours has a little intermission. I wish I had known that going in. I was just saying that to Bart because I ended up pausing it like five minutes before the intermission. And then when I came back, it was like intermission. And I was like, damn, <laughs> could have done it right. 
But uh, anyhow, this is my kind of shit. Like, I'm usually into this sort of thing. So uh, I figured I may as well give it a try here, even though, I don't know, I feel like I'm always going for the American or the British movie, and I, I got to try and push my boundaries a little bit. But whatever. I'm glad I watched it. Guns of Navarone, the plot is that there are 2,000 British soldiers that are stuck on the Greek island of Keros, and whenever the Royal Navy tries to rescue them, they get stopped by these guns on the island of Navarone. And the problem with this island is that it is, like, the most... These guns specifically are, like, built into the side of this, like, completely steep, crazy mountain, and there is absolutely no way to access it. They're super powerful, uh, and, you know, they're also like the whole island's under watch and there's just no way to get on it. It's like a perfect, you know, nature made bunker that they dug into and then put guns on. <laughs> Basically, they're trying to figure out what to do. And so they get Captain Keith Mallory, who's played by Gregory Peck and his buddy Anthony Quayle, who plays Franklin. He basically puts together his his little, um, you know, group of spy superheroes for this and um elite squad elite squad that's the word i'm looking for the worst kind of movie (laughs) only you can do this and and gregory peck part of why he's picking on on mallory is that he is like he was a mountaineer and the only way to get on this island that they've identified is that there's this one side of the island that is like such a steep 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 cliff that they don't even bother patrolling it because there's just absolutely no way for a human being to get up the side of this cliff. You know, it's like just ridiculous kind of mountaineering stuff. So Keith Mallory, besides, you know, being in the army and being decorated or whatever the hell, you know, besides being competent, uh, that's part of why he gets dragged into this. And um, then they they pair him up with a Colonel um, Stavros of Greece, who is played by Anthony Quinn. Then there is this Miller, who is David Niven, who is like an explosives guru. And then there is Papademos, who's a native of Navarone, played by James Darren. You always get a singer in one of these elite squads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's the guy who like knows the rest of the island. So, you know, he's he's helping them scout. And then they also have this butcher of Barcelona, Brown, who's played by Stanley Baker, who's like a knife fighter. And they're like, the, you know, the resident murderer, even though they're all murderers because they're all part of the army. Though I, there is a distinction. When you're part of the army, it's legal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so like this is little crew of uh, experts. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, this is a... As I said, three-hour-long movies, so you're pretty much just following them in real time as they're they're pairing out this mission. So they disguise as Greek fishermen, and you know they get to their to the island. They manage to climb up the side of that steep, steep mountain in the rain. That's like you know crazy, crazy uh, conditions. Franklin ends up falling part part of the way, and he breaks his leg, which is you know of course another snag in the whole thing. And so now everyone has to kind of carry him around. They don't want to leave him, though they talk about leaving him quite a bit. Uh, they try to, like, hide out in, you know, in this mountain and in, in, in nature. And then they end up in these, like, you know, Greek ruins where they meet up with the sister of Papademos, who's Maria, and then her friend Anna. 
Uh, that's Irene Pappas and, and Gia Scala. And they are both fighting for the resistance. And so they join up and they, they help these guys to, you know, to help sabotage these guns. They get into the Greek village. There's this whole wedding that's like happening in, in this village. And so they try and hide within this wedding. And, and the Greeks all know that they're not Greek, basically. But they, you know, they sort of like know, also know they're not German. So they're they're fine with it. But uh, they managed to get ratted out and they can't figure out who did it or why or, you know, when. Then there's the intermission, (laughs) which was actually really well, I'll get to it. And then the you know, and then basically, you know, as as we're going on, you know, Franklin ends up with gangrene. They have to leave him, uh, you know, and then the Germans use like truth serum on him. And and he, you know, gives up whatever, you know, Mallory was was telling him as a plan. And uh, then they all have to to escape the germ. They escape the Germans. They all have to split up. And then we're bit pretty much like getting into there. There's betrayals and there's you know more sabotage and and uh, you know like laying all the explosives on on these guns and and you know managing to to basically walk into a a situation where there's no exit other than the the door they came in from and and trying to you know destroy these guns in time for the the navy to show up. So, I mean, you know, there's thrills and chills, as, as it were. But, God, what a bland movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thinking about it in retrospect, it, it you know, it sounds kind of fun. I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, did I really hate this movie as much as I think I did? And yeah, I did, because the characters are awful, and they're, they're so one-dimensional. Everything a character does is just to set something in the plot in motion. I mean... Mallory, Gregory Peck, and Anthony Quinn have this long history together, and Gregory Peck informs us that uh, Andrea's gonna gonna kill me when all this is over. When the war's over, he needs he needs to keep me alive to help with this mission and to defeat Germans. But once it's this war's over, he's gonna kill me. And there's this whole backstory about there's you know there were some German prisoners that Mallory had. He didn't kill them, and then they ended up killing. Andrea's family and you know it's all just a bunch of half-assed exposition to make things happen and it's it's so like the half-assed exposition just to add any tension because like gosh the pacing of the movie's not gonna do it (laughs) you know it's just so on the nose like Stanley Baker is his pretty much his only characteristic feature is he kills people with knives. So you get him in the background, like sharpening his knife all the time. And it's so (laughs) basic. It's just one of those movies. And David Niven is the idealist who doesn't want to move up in the ranks because he doesn't believe in killing and he doesn't want to be a career soldier and he doesn't want to be responsible for making decisions where people die, but and yet he's a bomb expert, and but he's always like the moral voice in this, and he's always getting on Mallory's case for doing something that he thinks is immoral when it's really just like trying to turn a pretty basic plot into some kind of melodrama. I thought, you know, it's another Alistair MacLean book, uh, like uh, Where Eagles Dare, which... I like that one. <laughs> I did not like it, and I thought, well, it can't be any worse than Where Eagles Dare, and it is. It's worse than Where Eagles Dare. It is worse. But it's basically exactly the same thing, just not done quite as well. Well, there's just there's too many characters with too little, uh, you know, as you said, too little personality. I mean, it's just pretty. I mean, I, as much as I like Gregory Peck, the guy's like a piece of wood. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, and when he doesn't have any like real characteristics other than like, hey, my buddy wants to murder me. Like that's really all we get about him. And, you know, the rest of him's not doing much. I actually really appreciated David Niven in this. The fact that he kind of gets on his high horse and, you know, has these like opinions, dissenting opinions is actually kind of interesting. I thought like versus everybody else who's just so like stoic that you want to just kill yourself because <laughs> it's like everyone's such a man. There's like nothing to, to work with. And it makes you miss Richard Burton, though, because Richard Burton, like, you know, has real personality <laughs> and he he does the stoic man thing, but there's always emotion behind it. And and that's what this was desperately needing. Like everyone's just too much of a stoic man. So whenever David Niven kind of freaks out, I was like appreciative. <laughs> but my, my biggest beef with this was just, I mean, besides the, the pacing just being really, really slow, uh, you know, there's only a couple of moments that were really intriguing to me. I just hate like the, the not only are the characters too masculine, but the storytelling is just too like mid-century man. It's like, it's only speaking to a mid-century man sensibility. So it's like the biggest points of drama in this movie hinge on the idea that like women dying is inherently sadder than men dying. You know, it has nothing to do. It's like even the honor of the war is less important than like that. It's this idea that like, Oh, if a man has to kill a woman, then gee, that's like the absolute epitome of drama. And it's like, eh, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, none of the character interactions interested me even a little bit. I mean, it sets up this romance between Irene Pappas and Anthony Quinn. You know, this movie is desperate for some kind of female energy, but that doesn't really work at all because it seems so obvious it's like oh we've got two actual greek people here let's set up this spark of romance and right. you know who cares the only parts that interested me were like there were a couple of like man against nature moments like when they're scaling this cliff i thought that was kind of exciting you know it's done in this 1961 hollywood way so it's not quite as realistic as it would be later in cinema but it's still really effective and and then when the boat is it's going through these two you know the the Scylla and the Charybdis moment where they, they, you know, these two, it's a storm and they're going between these, trying to navigate between these two rocks and they, they crash and it's, uh, you know, them trying to get off the boat. And I thought that was exciting too, but that's like just straight, you know, survivalist stuff. There's drama in that, but the drama that they try and set up between the humans just is not interesting at all. I think my favorite part of this movie was actually the fact that the first half of the movie ends in failure. Like, that was really interesting. I thought that was, like, a great setup. Just, like, this idea that, like, you know, these men are doing their, their manliness and they've overcome all these obstacles and they, you know, they get in, they've, they've infiltrated this island and then they get caught halfway through and then suddenly it's the intermission. I thought that was actually really well laid out and, and interesting. Usually, you know, it's like they get pushed back, but then they come back even stronger. And in this one, they just straight up fail. It's like the first half of this whole movie is rendered semi-pointless <laughs> yeah that's true and that was kind of interesting i thought that was that was fun and, and like you know actually got me excited for the second half which i would say that i i liked better than the first half just because it has more of that human drama even if i wasn't totally sold on it being sad for what happens i i at least was a little more interested and then when they're just like sneaking around these guns and planting explosives that's that stuff i really like like that's when it's like almost I don't, I don't know. That's like the Indiana Jones part of the movie for me. <laughs> I don't know. I was already checked out at that point. 
I think Jay Lee Thompson is a pretty stodgy director, and I haven't been too impressed. I mean, he did do the original Cape Fear, which I do really like, but then he also did John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, one of the worst movies that we ever covered on this podcast. See, there's an example of a movie with just nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think part of the problem is his stodginess as a director. He just doesn't bring a whole lot of life to his projects. Yeah, I agree. This was this was a disappointment. Which again, like this is usually the kind of thing that I'm into, but alas. I, I do wonder and I would be open to, to watching this again on a big screen. Because sometimes there really is something to seeing it in a theater that a lot of like the, the drama comes in the fact that like it's just this massive epic. And so I, I'm open to the idea that maybe it's more exciting in the right setting. Yeah, it's a, as they say, a beautifully mounted film, but uh, that's about as far as it goes. And that does translate to a big screen viewing a lot better than a home viewing. So I'm I'm guessing that's not going to make your top 10 of 1961 when we go over those lists at the end of the episode. Funny enough, it's my number one, but... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Now's the part of the episode where we have chosen a couple of movies that we already know we love, and we know that if we cover them in this episode, they are guaranteed to make our top 10 for 1961, hopefully. And so my pick was one of my favorites, Jacques Rivette's first film, Paris Belongs to Us. big fan of the director and you know he kind of sets up in this first movie a lot of the the same things that he ends up doing throughout his career which is uh having female protagonists where a lot of the story a lot of what's going on is you know just sort of sparked by her imagination and uh figuring out what's what's all just in her head and her like overactive imagination and what's really happening. And, uh, and also there's a lot of uh, watching actors rehearsing, which he seems to, to bring back into to all of his films. The plot of this movie is, uh, so we've got Anne, this uh, young student in Paris who is in this boarding house and her neighbor, uh, the room across the hall is a Spanish girl who is, weeping and crying and uh, so she goes in and says what's what's wrong and uh, she's talking about her brother Juan who died and uh, she says oh they killed him they it's all a conspiracy they you know without being specific who killed him they say they they killed him and so she um, and tries to comfort her but also wants to know you know her her imagination is sparked by this whole idea that there's this conspiracy and, and people are dying because of it. And, and uh, the next day, this, this Spanish girl is, is gone. Her room is empty. And uh, Anne's brother, Pierre, is, is uh, quite a bit older. And he's been living in, in Paris for a while. And he's sort of you know, mixed up in the, you know, the business of the wealthy you know, to-do set in Paris. And uh, he brings her to this party of some of his uh, artist friends. And there's discussion of this Juan person who 
you know, they all say that he's killed himself. And that's the that's the official version that he it was suicide. But Anne's already really caught up in this whole idea and wants to know more about Juan and more about these people. And there's, you know, there's an American there named Philip Kaufman, who is an expat in Paris and is, uh, you know, has been blacklisted in America. He's, he's some kind of journalist. And uh, there are a lot of expats in the story. And it's, I think the title is kind of ironic saying that, uh, you know, Paris belongs to us. Well, this is a story about all people who aren't even native to Paris. They're all outsiders living here to get away or to, you know, for, for whatever reason. There's kind of an American femme fatale type. Uh, Terry is her name, and she was dating Juan before he killed himself. And, you know, there's certain people are accusing her of causing him to kill himself because he couldn't deal with her breaking up with him. And and she was actually dating Philip before Juan. And, all, you know, all of these characters are mixed up together. And we're, you know, we learn little bits about their story, but it's all sort of glancingly referred to so we never know all that much and it's all all of this sort of mystery and intrigue is really just you know and this young French girl from a small town you know this innocent is just really caught up in all of this at the same time she ends up going to this rehearsal for a play that's being put on by the the guy who had hosted this party that she went to with her brother and actually we, we get a nice little cameo from Jean-Claude Brielli in there. He, he doesn't have a large role in this movie, but he, he shows up and, and he's the one who brings her to this rehearsal because he's in it. And Philippe asks Anne to read one of the roles because the actor didn't show up. It's an underfunded play. Like they've, they've got no budget. And nobody's getting paid to do it. It's a, it's a version of Shakespeare's Pericles. And so at the same time, she's, you know, gets this bug for acting. She's a literature student and, you know, never wanted to be an actor, but loves doing it. Philippe asks her to take over the role. And she's also really fascinated by Philippe and is starting to have feelings for him. And while all this is going on, more people die and from you know mysterious ways. And this whole conspiracy just gets more and more complicated. And it's hard to tell what's real, what's not. And uh, it's great. <laughs> I love this movie. I'd only seen it once before and thought it was incredible the first time and it was the mystery of it that really hooked me and and got me engaged so I thought oh it'd be great to watch this again and try and piece together what's actually happening in this movie and what's interesting is that you can't really piece together what's happening in this movie and it's still totally absorbing nonetheless you know never being quite sure what's going on that is the real hook here and I love it it was certainly more interesting than my three-hour movie. <laughs> but I don't I I don't really know what to make of this. This was my first time watching it. I kind of got the sense by the end of it, I definitely felt like this is a kind of movie that's more fun to think about than it is to watch. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I wasn't upset about watching it, but I also wasn't exactly enjoying myself as I was watching it. I found it kind of grating because of that fact that you just can't, there's nothing to follow. It's just this like series of strung together events and characters that are just sort of every time you think you're getting close to them, they, they flip and, you know, go the other way. It's like, it's like trying to pet a cat for three hours that like doesn't want to talk to you. <laughs> That's the experience of watching this movie. And occasionally it swipes at you, you know, like it was just sort of like it, the whole thing felt very cagey, but I mean, I think that's kind of the 
point of this movie. I think that's what is, you know, that Rivette's kind of dancing around is this like the comforts of paranoia is what I got out of this that like, you know, it's these artists that are trying to make sense of this godless world that they created where everything is like life and death because you have nothing else to live for, but like your abstract desire to create art. Mm -hmm. So playing with these ideas of like conspiracy and and justification and and just how far we're going to go down a road that suits us or caters to our most base fears. That's like an interesting topic to me. I mean, there really is, especially in light of our current political climate around the, the Western world, even, you know, these sort of like echoes of fascism and how, how these things, though, like maybe you, you reject the policy, but like you also internalize the thinking. And just again, like that leaning into paranoia and like realizing just how much like structure mystery gives you. You know, like there's something, it's something to live for. It's something to chase and like something to fight against. And these are all things that are very inspiring when you are, you know, when you're an artist and everything around you is terrible and you don't, you don't have anything to live for. And like, you know, your art's not going anywhere and you're living in these crummy little rooms and, you know, everyone you know is, has some kind of drama going on, whether it's emotional or like they're like, there's these political prisoners basically that are trying to escape something that are like you know and dealing with the trauma of of what they just went through and and revolution and and all of that kind of stuff so like that that's interesting to me it's like it's chaos but with a purpose yeah i get a thrill out of that chaos in a movie though like when when it's clearly controlled chaos like i like that feeling of being you know everything seeming out of control but knowing that the director is really is in control of everything the whole time and knows what he's doing. Like I'd find that to be a thrilling feeling. And uh, this movie has that in, in spades in a way. It's not even a sixties movie. This movie was filmed in the late, like 1958. So it was one of the first French new wave features filmed. Like it was, you know, it should have come out right around the same time as Chabrol's Le Cousin or something and would have been considered one of the first French New Wave films, but it ended up coming out after Breathless and 400 Blows. Jacques Rivette was was one of the later people to the scene. He was one of these, um, you know, Caillou de Cinema critics who decided to make movies. But there is something about the the setting of this movie that it's still the 50s and there is there is more of this sort of rebel without a cause feeling about it that like you were saying it's you know something is wrong here but we're not sure what it is and we're we're artists and we have political consciences and we know that the government is out to get us but we don't know exactly why they're out to get us we can't point to anything in particular and you know it's sort of the height of cold war paranoia so not a whole lot of nation against nation stuff in here but it does refer to the spanish Civil War, they're, you know, fighting against Francoism. So there's one specific political event that it points to, but it sort of takes you back to before this more structured 60s political unrest was starting to take form and the sort of nebulousness of what these people are fighting against in this movie is, you know, it seems like a real portrait of what led up to the French New Wave and, you know, this all the political unrest in the 60s. So I, th- I think it's kind of fascinating for that reason, too. It's definitely more straightforward. As, uh, as sort of weirdly structured as this movie is, it's more straightforward than most of what Jacques Rivette did after this. 
everything takes place in the quote unquote real world. Nothing is clearly imaginary that's happening in it. But it also is is really looking forward to, you know, Celine and Julie go boating uh, and and movies like that where it does really delve into, you know, what's happening in our imaginations is more interesting than what's happening in reality sorts of things. My love for this movie may be connected to the fact that I was already a fan of Rouvette before I saw it. And then when I saw it, I just saw all these things in it that were were clues to to where he was headed with his future filmmaking. And I found that really exciting, too. I don't know. It's it's also the things that happen in this movie are so sort of unclear that it should be a lot harder to watch than it is. But somehow it keeps moving forward. You know, maybe maybe you were bored by that structure of this film, but I, I thought it was amazing how you're never really sure what's going on or what's happening, and yet you're still wanting to see, oh, maybe this next odd turn of events will explain something, and it doesn't. Maybe this next one will, and it doesn't. And... I just wasn't that interested. I, I thought, like, Anne was concocting. Like, it felt more like this naive girl, you know, that, that is wandering into something that that she doesn't understand and drawing a whole bunch of like erroneous conclusions it got more interesting to me when like it starts to become clear that there is some like people are actively planting ideas in her head like when the american writer and and i think it's terry like when they both start to really like you know mess with her (laughs) Mm -hmm. that was interesting to me and but i also it might have also had to do with the fact that like i love like all those illustrations and philip Kaufman's room you know like these like angry faces that he like continually draws over and over again that are just like lining the walls were really it was just like a really great shot it's just like a great scene yeah suggesting that he's sort of bordering on schizophrenic paranoia you know the same picture that he draws over and over and over and over yeah this like menace that's sort of like behind her and she's like un- unaware of that that yeah like she's just so she's so blinded by the moment that she's missing the bigger picture when it's like literally a picture behind her of like anger and like you know madness and and so i thought that was really great stuff like i definitely didn't dislike this movie at all i just like it, it was just I, I just found it kind of fatiguing for its length and then also for the fact that yeah like you're always like chasing something that just isn't there and you know at no point does the character really have that you know frustration or, or answered or give voice to that like she's just always kind of like going with it and and just like stuck in this like momentary like like everything around her is proving it wrong and yet she's still like you know marching forward uh even more so than than all of these artists around her who are like giving up or or you know have other things that they're busy doing while she's rushing around trying to figure it out it was interesting i don't know like i i the only thing that i couldn't really make sense of and 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 it's because i don't really know pericles is is was there do you feel that there is any parallels to shakespeare in this like i didn't i have never read pericles and i read a plot synopsis of it after watching this this time, just to see what the connection is between the two. And I think the only connection I could make is that Pericles is about, uh, you know, a bunch of different characters, you know, who are all in exile and are awaiting to return to, to the place that they're from. And that's, you know, there's probably more to it than that. There are probably political connections, but I just reading a summary of the play, I couldn't determine much more than that. And for the record, this movie is only two hours and 20 minutes long. 
Rivet has made plenty of like three, four hour movies, but this this isn't one of them. So it, the second a movie is over two hours, it's three hours. <laughs> I round up. Right. <laughs> it's also fun to see all of the new wave directors have cameos in this. I think maybe Godard was the only one I recognized the first time I watched this, but uh, Claude Chabrol and Jacques Demy are both in this as well, and I recognized them this time. And I just, there's something so romantic to me about these Cahiers de Cinema guys and the birth of the French New Wave that I can't, I can't get enough of it. Something is happening and you don't know what it is. I actually think that the Bob Dylan comparison is not inapt with this movie. It's got a similar sense of humor to Dylan. It's coming from a similar place. It does. This this movie is is like basically the embodiment of it's not yellow, it's chicken. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, for my Mary, I'm going to bring us right back to Italy for Divorce Italian Style by Pietro Germi. <laughs> Sicily in the 60s, and we are following Ferdinando Fifi Cefalu, who is played by Marcello Mastriani, and he is this, like, Sicilian nobleman. He is married. He's in his, like, 30s. He's been married to Rosalia, who's played by um, Daniela Roca, and she is his devoted, completely devoted, head-over-heels wife, and he can't stand her, you know, women, right? Take my wife, please, situation. And he lives in this sort of like castle-y, mansion-y uh, house that, you know, they basically, they used to be noble people. They are now have absolutely no money. It's like the story of Italy. Everyone's living in these like crumbling mansions. The, the place has been split. It's this beautiful building where there's like a private courtyard and half of the building is split between his family and his parents and, and his wife. And then the other half is his cousins and, you know, his aunt and uncle. And, uh, you know, the, the point of, of contention with this whole film is that basically that uh, Fifi is, is in love with another woman who ends up being his 16-year-old cousin who's played by uh, Stefania Sandrelli, which is like her first role. She was actually f- like 14, I think when she was playing this role as a 16-year-old, uh, you know, love interest for Marcello Mastriani, who was, I think, pushing 40. Yeah, and so pretty much, like, he becomes obsessed with this idea that he has to get rid of his wife and he has to marry her because she is, like, the pure uh, embodiment of femininity and, and love that he's always uh, dreamed after and lusted after. And... If you can't tell by now, this is absolutely a satire and a, and a dark comedy. This is not just a completely creepy love story and quite a bit like a difficult life. Uh, there's a lot of setup in this film where it basically is talking about Sicily and Sicilian society. And the, the main point of um, humor hinges on this idea that actually because divorce is illegal in Italy, if you, you know, try to divorce or if he, you know, cheats on his wife or something, you know, like he can go to jail. But if he kills her, 
in an honor killing, meaning that she cheats on him or he has reason to believe that she's cheating uh, and then murders her. He actually can not only basically divorce her, but he only gets like three years in prison max, you know, like three to seven years, uh, which is, you know, the the absolute best way to get out of a marriage in Italy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like the whole film is basically it's it's this we were following Marcello Mastriani as he's fantasizing about murdering his wife and in various ways while she is like just always constantly doing things for him and in a loving way and, you know, over the top, uh, you know, his cousin who was just like too young to even have a personality, let alone like a thought in her head, you know, she like ends up developing a bit of a, a very childish crush on her older attractive cousin. And uh, yeah, he's just basically trying to plot, you know, different ways to murder his wife until he finally realizes that, you know, Oh, there was this, love letters that his wife had before she married him from this guy named Carmelo, who is a painter. And, you know, it was like before world war two that he was like, you know, interested in her. So then Marcello manages to run into this guy realizes like, Oh, I can, let me, let me bring this guy around the house and be a temptation and see what happens to, to get my wife to, you know, to cheat on me basically. So then I can murder her. And uh, yeah, I mean, this I, it's hard to like explain the plot of this because this movie is like full on laugh out loud funny. There's just so much where, where it's being told from Marcello Mastriani from from Fifi Cephalou's, uh, you know, point of view. So it's very much um, him talking about all of his fantasies and, and, you know, repeating, you know, like the ways that he's going to have his very articulate lawyer stand up for him in court and all of the, you know, waxing poetic about how, how necessary it was to murder her. Uh, you know, he pl- he's like plotting and, and paranoid and also like just playing with all of this sort of Sicilian social pressures. And yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just, it's just a perfect satire. Yeah. I really like this film. I saw it. This is only my second time watching it. And I, saw for the first time quite a while ago and um you know it did sort of you know spark my interest in commedia alla italiana this is actually i mean this is sort of the epitome of that style of film you know it divorzio alla italiana that the whole genre was kind of named after this film and so many things that got brought over to uh, to america and had italian style added to the the name, you know, just so that I have people... a whole letterbox list <laughs> list that lists every single one of them. Just because this was such a hit uh, around the world that, uh, you know, every, you know, trying to make every Italian movie as big a hit uh, in, in America and elsewhere in Europe, they're adding this Italian style to the, to the name. But uh, yeah, and it is kind of a perfect satire. I remember seeing it for the first time and I was like, oh, how... You know, about a guy who can't get a divorce, so he wants to kill his wife so he can marry another woman. How how interesting could that be? And it ended up really surprising me because it's not nearly as straightforward as that. There's a you know a lot of a lot of different aspects. A lot of you know the plot does not go in a straightforward way at all. And it's uh, you know it's just fun to watch the the ins and outs of how this all ends up working out. Seeing it a second time, I was you know, somewhat less enchanted by it because a lot of the fun of the film is watching how the plot 
works out and kind of knowing where it's going to go, the surprises are, are not there anymore. And then you're just kind of watching this guy who's not completely unsympathetic. Like, you know, as soon as he sort of matter of factly decides, yeah, I guess I've got to kill my wife. You think, oh, this is not a good guy. But there's, you know, there, there's he's he's such a romantic, like the way that he's is really just caught up with uh, Angela. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of this hopeless love that he feels and just doesn't know what to do about it. It's, you know, in a way, it's it makes him a little more sympathetic, even though the way that he's going about this is is awful. You know, he's a villain. But... Yeah, I don't know. There's something about that feeling. And a lot of the social commentary in this is about this ex-aristocracy, these bored, noble people who don't have the money to go travel or do any of the things that aristocrats are supposed to do. So they're just sort of bored at home. They can't get a job because that's beneath them. So they just sort of sit around at home with nothing to do. And that's sort of an essential part of, of what this movie is all about. His obsession with Angela has to do with how he's got nothing else in his life. That's, you know, he just has nothing to do but but dream about her and, and having a life with her. And his wife is not even, she's not particularly unattractive. They say, you know, she's got a unibrow and that's about all they do to make her look a little less beautiful. And she's not as young as Angela, but there's no particular reason that he should hate his wife other than They've been married for a long time, 15 years or something. You know, they were they were kids when they got married. And I think that a lot of what this movie is about, his obsession with the way things used to be, like back when it meant something to be a nobleman, back when he was in love for the first time and, the, you know, the world was uh, an oyster. Well, you know, there, he, you know, had so much to look forward to. And now, you know, being married for 15 years to this the same woman, that all the dreams and the the joys of his youth are gone and he thinks he can recapture it with the 16-year-old. And that, all of that is really interesting and gives this movie more layers to it than just, you know, this sort of plot-driven exercise and showing this guy's obsessive planning to murder his wife. But I also found that there was a, a little bit less to it than I remembered from when I saw it the first time. Well, I mean, I think that the sympathy thing is really interesting. So like, you know, again, like Marcello Mastriani is absolutely amazing in this movie. Like he just crushes it. There's so many like little nuances to, to the way that he performs this, where he's just leaning into basically being the absolute worst version of himself. And yet he's still just as charming uh, and, and amazing. I mean, like his facial tics alone, they elevate everything. Constantly sucking his teeth. That's sort of his big tick in this movie. Yeah, and just like the way that he sort of thinks to himself and the way he preens himself and he looks like a slob, but like, you know, he's he thinks of himself as a god and, and you know, there's just so much that he's playing with here visually and, you know, with and also with, you know, his perception by this time he's a huge star. His Dolce Vita is, is out there in the world and he's the the Latin lover and then this is his follow-up. <laughs> you know, is is just a stroke of genius right there. Not to mention that this film shows the excitement in town and outrage when La Dolce Vita is being shown in the local theater. Yes, this perfect moment. Another letterbox list I have is Marcello Mastriani in movies that reference directly Marcello Mastriani movies. (laughs) (laughs) The sympathy, though, is interesting because, like, the character isn't sympathetic, but he's tapping into a, a feeling of, you know, desiring love and not receiving the type of love that you feel you deserve. And that's what gets us as an audience, in my opinion. It's like 
it's like when the wrong person has a crush on you there's like a level of anger that can happen with that it, it's like this contradictory emotion it's like everything that you you want to walk because you want to wallow in like woe is me but in reality there's there's just like nothing is as black and white as the way that you feel about yourself you know like there's nothing to pity about somebody who you know has a crush like you know the wrong person has a crush on me there's nothing to pity there or like you know that somebody even thinks that you're fantastic enough to have a crush on you should be flattering and yet you know most people respond in anger to that most people you know will will you know turn around and and uh, or at least not maybe not most but many people uh you know, treat uh, whoever they think has a crush on them poorly. You know, there's this weird, almost like extension of self-hatred or, you know, I don't want to be part of a club that would have me in it kind of a thing where, mm. you know, you've either been on the receiving end or you've had the feeling. It's like, you know, somebody, it's like the kind of almost like when someone copies you. Is this this idea that like, why are you infatuated with me? Like, you know, like leave me alone kind of stuff. And, and I don't know, it's like the, the way that people also have that kind of like knee-jerk hatred when comedy's not good. I think like all of these these emotions kind of like blend in my mind to a degree. But so that's what's really the, the sympathetic part about him. But at this time it's his wife, his adoring wife, and he can't stand her. You know, he's disgusted by her. And, uh, you know, and that's the one, my biggest point of contention with this is that they have to like ugly up Rosalia and I kind of the way that I think about it in this film is that this is, you know, Fifi's idea of her that she has this like unibrow and this mustache and all of this stuff because she's a, she's beautiful otherwise. <laughs> and even then she's beautiful, even with like the it's just like the bad makeup that makes her look it's like bad, ugly makeup. Basically, my most positive interpretation would be that this is like. You know, once you get to know somebody enough, you start to, like, see the details of somebody's face that, like, you never really noticed before. Like, you know, if you've ever, like, even on your own face, stared at yourself in the mirror long enough and you're, like, get hyper-focused on, like, one flaw that, like, just distorts the way that you look in your mind. I, I That's kind of how I interpret this, like, obvious overt ugly makeup on her. Otherwise, it kind of actually does, like, the negative interpretation is that it actually is basically buying into a bit of the misogyny that the, the film is so clearly skewering and yet can't seem to get away from it, you know, even as much as it's uh, satirizing it, which is, could be very true for 1960s Italy, quite frankly. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's misogynist, it hates men just as much because the the uh, portrait of masculinity uh, that Fifi is is definitely pretty unflattering. Oh, of course. And I mean, and that's why I chose this is that this is like, it's all of my favorite topics in one movie, because it's satirizing masculinity, you know, and in like, uh, hypocritical social norms, bureaucratic loopholes, corrupt religious authorities, uh, you know, just absolutely everything that tickles me every single time. And it leans hard into all of those uncomfortable things and like uncomfortable humor. And it's an uncomfortable emotional truths. And it like it forces you to confront how much you sympathize with. It's like horrible, but deeply charming main character. <laughs> That's key to Commedia alla Italiana is, is how uncomfortable it is. It's always uncomfortable, depressing comedy. And I, I guess we're both suckers for that. I guess both of us like taking down institutions through humor rather than actual crushing depressing drama that this is this is the way we want to see society's flaws and foibles get taken down and 
Commedia alla Italiana does it so well. Well, it's taking all of these like screwed up things and and bringing them to their natural conclusion. It's like, you know, you can always dabble. It's so easy to dabble in misogyny because it's satisfying, right? Like it's satisfying to dismiss somebody else is not, you know, someone else's emotions or ideas as not being human or not being relevant to you because you're a superior. What a satisfying thing to do. But when you like force somebody to sit with that and you say, okay, if that's how you feel, then, then what happens to you, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like in this scenario or like, you know, where does that leave you? Like, are you just like, are, are you now a happy person that people love? Like, probably not, you know, like, and there's the, all of the touches where they, they show like, you know, all the people sitting around the town square and like, you know, staring these women down or, or, um, all of these just hypocritical men who they spend all day talking about women that like may or may not exist, you know, like they're, they're all these fantasies about, yeah, I could have had her, you know, it's like, that's really all these guys are living in, in, in is this like total fantasy because like no one's going to touch them. I mean, it's like, just, like who would go for that? That's not attractive to anybody, you know, and, and as a universal thing, I mean, like anyone who's just so up their own ass is just like someone you don't even want to be near. I mean, the other thing about it, too, is just that, like, when you showcase something like this through the satirical lens, it's like the stuff that's sad becomes weirdly, like, sadder because it's like this is dark humor. I mean, like, the story of Rosalia is, like, really depressing. It's, like, deeply depressing, especially when you, if you really buy that, like, and, you know, if you can push past the idea that she's, like, annoyingly codependent, right? Like, which is, again, is, like, the interpretation of... Fifi, it's not may or may not be the reality because we're getting this whole thing from an unreliable narrator. But once you push past that, it's like, man, her story is so depressing. (laughs) Like that she's like married to this guy who's just like can't even stand her, won't touch her, even though she's like devoted to him. And then like just the way that like when she finally meets somebody who, you know, actually is interested in her and wants to give her all the romance that she gets is like that that's a death sentence. The other thing on top of that too is that this is all like real. <laughs> like yeah. these are this is real Sicilian law. You know, in Italy, a real Italian law. And so like there there's just all of these layers to this where, you know, I don't know, it's just like it, it it's so absurd and and so insane. And yet, you know, it's it's completely grounded in reality. And and that's like that to me is like the what, what makes it so funny. Yeah, it's like you have to make it a comedy. This darkness and ugliness of reality is so awful that there's no way you'd want to watch it in a in a straightforward drama. You have to make it funny or it's completely unpalatable. So coming soon, hopefully, a whole episode devoted <laughs> to to. Commedia alla Italiana. This was the movie that got me into Commedia alla Italiana too. Actually, this this was like after I saw this the first time, it was just like it it opened a door and like you know just got me completely obsessed. And I had seen other you know Italian movies, but like it, it like unlocked something that I was missing in watching like even La Dolce Vita. Now I can I can see echoes of this in that to some degree it's like not really but like it's it's there you know like or or il sorpasso which i i'd love to rewatch um because i think the first time i saw it i was missing a lot of this kind of context and this eye and so this is just i don't know this is the the gateway drug you know it's it's clear why there's about eight thousand movies that tried to steal the name just to to ride off of those good feelings and there are other, like even Criterion has several out that I like even more than I like 
this one, like Seduced and Abandoned and Mafioso. And they're great. And I don't think people talk about them enough. We need to start a revival of Commedia alla Italiana. It's, it's like the best of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> now we get into the formerly kill part of the show, but now it's, it's wild card where we're, we've picked some movies that have caught our eye for one reason or another, and we don't uh, necessarily know much about them, but we're like, hey, we'll give it a shot. Maybe, maybe this could be one of the best movies of 1961. I just don't know enough about it to be sure. Uh, what I picked was My Son the Hero, um, which is actually not a great <laughs> title, the Spanish title. Uh, it's a Mexican film, and the Spanish title is Los Hermanos del Hierro, which makes more sense because it's about two brothers uh, named Del Hierro. Directed by Ismael Rodriguez, and uh, it's it's a basically a western, but it's got a strong nonviolence message. That actually, I'm I'm surprised more westerns don't tap into this. Like a lot of westerns will have the 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 gunfighter who's hung up his guns and uh, wants to get out of the violence business, but uh, is dragged back into it. And that's a pretty common western story, but it's very rare to see something like this where the whole you know from the first moment our hero there it's it's two brothers Reynaldo and Martin and the older brother is an expert at shooting but he doesn't he he hates violence and and just is opposed to this whole cycle of violence like you know one person killing another and then getting a revenge on the person who killed that person and and the because these these two boys you know when they were younger are uh, you're traveling with their father it's actually Reynaldo's stepfather but he actually has has a closer relationship to him for reasons that we never find out a hired gunman kills their father right in front of them they're just you know singing a song uh you know riding horses through the desert and uh, their father gets shot we see some flashbacks to to who this guy their father was and he's a, a really you know nice guy he also has sort of this non-violent philosophy and we see we see it them at a dance where he sort of has this conflict with another person who wants to dance with the person he's dancing with and you know in order to keep things from turning violent he's like okay here you you can dance with her you know guns are about to be drawn and he's like oh no i don't want to be any part of that and so he's a good guy and you, you feel like reynaldo's philosophy is sort of comes from his father's uh peaceful nature martin however is you know, lives his whole life training to you know, grow up and get his revenge on the person who killed his father, this Pascual Velasco, who um, we find out is just this hired gunman who didn't have any personal reasons for killing their father. He just was hired to do it. And he's sort of when we, when we finally run into him later in the film, he's depressed and is miserable from this life of hired killing that he's led. But, uh, Martine is this sort of hot-tempered kid who's always, like, jumping into fights with people, you know, escalating conflicts into a murderous rage. And uh, Reynaldo loves his brother and wants to, like, protect him, but also is, you know, hates this person that he's become. And 
It's also their their mother is a big reason why Martine is hell-bent on revenge because she's been pushing the both of them to, no, you must get vengeance. You, you, this man was my, my whole life, and he was uh, murdered for no reason, and uh, you, you have to revenge uh, his death. And, uh, and Reynaldo doesn't want to. Martine makes it his life. And so we follow these two. You know, Martine just sort of gets into more and more trouble. He's killing people for no particular reason and they're they're on the run because Reynaldo is is you know, wants to keep him out of trouble keep him from getting caught even though you know some part of him thinks that Martine is too much of a bad guy to really you know be allowed to survive but he's you know it's his brother they manage to find this farm these you know sort of old friends of the family who protect them and they they work on this farm for a while and the young daughter there Jacinta has uh shown a preference for Reynaldo and er, earlier in the film they sort of meet and fall in love but Reynaldo is also too caught up in trying to protect Martine and their you know and they know that their lives are always you know in, in constant disruption so they're having a relationship you know marrying somebody is not something that would work out so but it's so Martine not knowing of his brother's love for Jacinta he goes after her himself and there's so there's the brothers are set against each other for that reason too, and uh, yeah, I mean that's the setup for this movie, and it plays out in you know not completely unpredictable way, but it's it's pretty satisfying and a uh, Mexican western. I don't think I've ever seen one before, and it was cool. It was it was fun to see, and uh, for it to be one with such a strong message of nonviolence was uh, you know that was also great to see. I'm not sure it's a, a perfect movie, but it's uh, it was it was a satisfying one. Really glad I watched it. Yeah, this movie ruled. Um, I was really impressed with it, especially the anti like the how clearly anti-violence it was. Especially you know for a western, and and yet it was a pretty violent movie. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> there's some pretty gnarly scenes in this. Like there's a scene where Martin. Uh, you know, ends up getting his nose broken and there's just blood gushing and gushing out of his nose in a way that Guns of Navarone wouldn't have ever shown. <laughs> yeah, you, you see a bullet going into a forehead, which for 1961 was pretty shocking. Right. I, there's a bunch of like gnarly violence and, and, you know, depiction of violence, which totally works with the message, honestly. I mean, it, it helps you sort of see just how, how crazy and and frightening people look when they uh, sort of indulge that that side of themselves. And plus, I, I, I really love this idea that, you know, showing this mother who's hell-bent on revenge to the point that she basically poisons the well and, and ruins the lives of both of her children, you know, shoving guns in, in the hands of toddlers because they have to learn how to hunt down the man who killed their father. You know, that that's kind of stuff was really, uh, it's, it's interesting to see. This commentary, especially again in, in 1960 in, in America, it's like, you know, that was every, all these little kids playing with guns, matching their heroes, the hero cowboy who, who uses his gun for good. And like, here, here's a perfect example of like, there is no good to be done with a gun kind of a film, which again, yeah, from 1961 is, is pretty fantastic. Uh, but really the best part about this is the characters. I'm a sucker for the like, the crazy brother <laughs> as a trope is like one of my favorite things ever. And, and uh, so to have just like the two of them playing off of each other, but the, the acting is really fantastic and the cinematography rules in this. There are so many really striking scenes that are super memorable and, and get across so much and, and without even having to speak, it's almost like there, there's these like silent film esque uh, 
you know, expressionist shots. Oh, it was shot by the director, Ismael Rodriguez, shot it, co-wrote the film. Like, this is nearly 100% just his baby. It's all, all his vision. But he did. You're right. The cinematography was great. A lot of unusual choices that probably you know would not have happened necessarily if it weren't for uh, the director having this confidence to get his own vision into this film. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the opening shot alone, I mean, it, it made me think of um, El Topo. And, uh, you know, it's just like the father riding his horse uh, in between his two young sons. And they're all singing this song about a bird. And it's like almost like idyllic and yet kind of like stark and, and creepy and minimalist. And, and then there's this man. And, you know, it's, it's dreamlike. It's this very strange, striking uh, composition that was just, you know, well framed and, and perfectly uh, set up. And then whenever Martin gets triggered into violence, he he kind of has this like breakdown where he has this like face of anguish that reminds me of like uh, Battleship Potemkin. You know what I mean? Like it's just like <laughs> the, the the expressions that he makes before he then like a switch gets flipped and he and he goes on a rampage is it's just like it's so satisfying to watch and it and it works. I mean, like you know, it's not even like silly in in this night in 1961 no it like feels like really great it feels really real it kind of helps create the there, there's like a fable-ish feeling across the whole thing which you know really works when it comes down to its you know anti-violence message and there's some really self-conscious editing in this too like with the scenes that you're talking about where that you know this anger on uh, on martin's face like the the director will start with a, a distant shot and then cut to, you know, hard cut to a closer shot, hard cut to a, you know, even closer shot. And it's very, you know, draws attention to itself in a way that a Hollywood Western at this time would never do. So it is, it's got a sort of artistic edge to it. You know, it doesn't feel much like a French New Wave movie, but it's got this, you know, similar kind of instinct behind it, I think, this director with this this vision that he must get onto film. So it's exciting to see that. The one thing about this movie I thought was creepy <laughs> was this uh, May-December romance between a, like, 41-year-old actor and a 16-year-old girl. See, like, it's funny because we're following Divorce Italian style talking about this movie, but because it was a satire in Divorce Italian style, it somehow felt a little less creepy. Well, you're supposed to find it a little creepy, I think, so... Uh, no, but yeah, I mean as for, for the actual age of the actress. Hmm. Because like Stefania was Sandrelli was was fourteen, <laughs> and she's kissing Marcello Mastriani, which is you know, not great. <laughs> but what fourteen year old didn't want to kiss Marcello Mastriani? I mean, I, I I have actually read. I I looked up interviews and and she had nothing but nice things to say about him and said he was very professional and and not a creep. For what that's worth, but I think other people would argue that there's no way to not be creepy about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for this one, it's creepier in a way just because of the fact that Reynaldo is really the the one who's meant to have the sense, and and you know, versus uh, Martine, who's who's all about impulse. And so, like the fact that Reynaldo is like trying to mac on this sixteen year old, and I don't know, it's weird. It's it's kind of a, a weird part of this whole thing because he also makes a big deal about her age and and that you know Martin isn't you know like he's he's clearly the, you know the actor is also in his thirties. He's clearly meant to be younger. I think everyone's meant to be younger, but um, not young enough. Yeah, 
Well, there are also a lot of things preventing Ronaldo from professing his love to Pacinta, and uh, I sort of got the impression that the age difference was part of that. Part of him thought it, you know, maybe it wasn't quite so appropriate for him to be so in love with this young girl. She's definitely more physical with Martine, and it doesn't seem quite as disturbing as if that actress was making out. Patricia Conde, who plays her, was making out with Antonio Aguilar, playing Ronaldo. Like, that would have been a little upsetting. But the nature of their relationship in this movie is they don't end up being physical at all. But yeah, I uh, I chose in this movie just because I find it a little fascinating when I see a movie that's got an amazingly high user rating on IMDb and Letterboxd, but there are very few people who've seen it, which means that they're probably these, you know, maybe it's older Mexicans who remember it from their childhood or something and have a high opinion of it. But I always, you know, want to see, you know, part of the same reason I wanted to see A Difficult Life was like, I'm interested in movies that are beloved in their home country that have not made much of an impression in America. Like, those have got to be good, right? So that's, I think that was a big part of the reason I chose this one. And and the poster was good. Yeah, this movie ruled. I was so, I was happy to, to watch it. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, my wild card movie was The Rebel. Directed by Robert Day. This is a Tony Hancock movie. This is a British movie uh, written by Ray Galton and Alan Simpson. So Tony Hancock, you know, had a very, very popular sketch show, basically, written by uh, Simpson and Galton. And uh, I've never actually watched it. I know about it. Um, This is definitely the era of British humor that either is like transcendent or terrible. And I had always been, uh, I've heard good things about Tony Hancock and I was curious to try, but I just, you know, I hadn't ever really dipped my toes in it. And so I thought, you know, starting with his movie, which was really kind of the end of his career with Galton and Simpson, he later dropped them. I think he sort of moved away. My understanding, though, I'm, I'm basing this on memory, is that he got out of a lot of comedy after this like he had this sort of split with them and I don't know there there was some drama there but I've always been interested in him and again it's like one of these things where it's like it's either going to be absolutely amazing or it's going to be absolutely terrible there's like no in between <laughs> because again it's like this 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 is like the british satire age the mid century is it's perfect or it's awful I felt both ways about this film actually but I'll let you give your two cents first Basically, it's about uh, Tony Hancock playing uh, a man named Anthony Hancock. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's playing himself, which I think was quite a bit of what his sketch shows were about, where he's basically this like, you know, office clerk who, you know, he does the same thing every day. He, you know, wears the same thing and he's on the train to, you know, to the same office where everyone's dressed the same and the, you know, everyone sits in a row and they all do the same thing at the same time. You know, it's sort of typical like miserable sort of place 
And he's going crazy because he feels like, what am I doing here? What am I doing with my life? This is just awful. And he decides, you know, he wants to be an artist and he quits his job in a fit of, you know, uh, frustration and inspiration almost. He, He quits his job to then be an artist full time where we go back to his house where he lives in a flat with his landlady who's named Miss Cravat. And she's, you know, complaining about how he's always hammering. And we see in his room, he has something he calls Aphrodite at the Waterhole, which is this like seven foot statue of basically like a grotesque cubist style, but it's like not cubism because it's just like incompetency as filtered through cubism. Uh, you know, woman, and he's like, thinks it's absolutely beautiful. And he thinks he's a genius. And, you know, when she's complaining of complaining, he finally, uh, you know, tells her, okay, I'm, you know, forget this. Uh, nobody understands me here. I'm going to go to France. I'm going to uh, live my dreams as, as an artist. So he heads off, you know, straps Aphrodite at the waterhole to a train and, you know, heads off to France and he- heads off. No pun intended. Right. Yeah, there's a genuinely great joke where as the, we see the train going under uh, a tunnel and, and the Aphrodite at the waterhole is too tall and her whole face gets knocked off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and it's like, you know, just straight up, they were like, yeah, let's just like destroy this bridge. I mean, this thing looks like it's made of plaster. But um, so he starts from scratch. He goes to Paris where he meets a whole bunch of other artists who are trying their best to make it. One of those artists is Oliver Reed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With a French accent. I think it's supposed to be a Spanish accent. Whatever accent it is, it's pretty good, but it's not much of a role. Yeah, I know. It's a total absolute camp. I mean, this and this is before Oliver Reed even, like, I think had his, his bigger roles anyhow. But this is, uh, yeah. It was, it was funny, though. I, I forgot. I think that might have been how I even knew this movie existed, was going through Oliver Reed's filmography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. Do. It was As I do. Yeah, so it's like basically that he shacks up with this other artist named Paul, who is an American, who's played by uh, Paul Massey. He's a talented artist who is, he's not that talented, but he's a talented artist who uh, feels like he doesn't have the vision. He's sort of lost and depressed and, you know, the same old pitfalls of, of any artist where, you know, he, he knows how to talk about it, but he, he doesn't have any faith in himself versus Tony, who's like, has all the faith in the world, like totally 1000% heart and soul will paint anything at any time, anywhere can make 10 paintings a day, but they're all like, you know, absolutely ridiculous looking. They're very childlike. They're, you know, they call them uh, infantile art. And that's a, a huge part of the humor of this is just seeing the artwork and seeing his art that sometimes actually really freaking rules. I got like kind of love some of his artwork. And then, yeah, I mean, that's the whole, this is the whole movie. It's just, it's making fun of art scenes and, and making fun of people who, you know, the, just the way that, you know, I don't know, like there's these like beatniks that show up that are all like, you know, they're all dressed the same and they look the same and all they can talk about is how I'm so happy we're not like those, you know, office workers. They all look the same and they dress the same. You know, it's like that kind of humor. Uh, you know, there's like this fake Dali guy who likes to, you know, sleep in odd places to inspire him. As, and, and you know, the whole thing is it's a satire on the art world, but it, it comes from an, uh, both a knowing place and a sort of loving place where unlike some of the really awful American comedies that we've watched that were, for example, like making fun of hippies and making fun of 
the idea of like chasing art as as like something that only idiots do when you can't get a job kind of a thing like there's never that kind of patronizing attitude in this but it is like acknowledging the pitfalls of like yeah when you abandon everything to be an artist like it's not as romantic as as you thought it might have been eventually um there's a point where paul gives up because he sees just how confident tony is he says i'm never going to be that confident nobody's going to like my art the way that they like tony's uh because all the scene guys are all like oh this is so cool and unique you know and so paul gets discouraged and he 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 basically says like he leaves and and um just in that moment you know a a a real gallery curator comes in and, and sees all of paul's art and says this is fantastic you know, and, and Tony says, he says, oh, this is yours. And Tony doesn't want to say no. <laughs> he doesn't say yes, but he also doesn't say no. Uh, and he keeps trying to show him, you know, his own art, which the, the gallery guy says, oh, this is crap. But look at this beautiful artwork you have here. And, uh, you know, it ends up that Tony gets famous for Paul's work, which then, you know, launches his actual career as an artist and everything that he wants is coming true. It's just that it's not his work. And uh, and then he gets into a handful of mischief with that, with this like, you know, rich guy who wants to commission a sculpture from him. And he has this like wife who's like super horny and like, you know, just loves that he's an artist and is like, you know, throwing herself all over him. And of course, he's, you know, the husband says, you know, I don't mind her flirting, but, you know, if you do anything with her, I'm going to murder you. And like that kind of, you know, it's like just the, the typical, you know, comedy setup. But. I don't know, this movie kind of ruled. I actually was like really laughing about certain things. And like whenever it's really playing into the intelligence of the satire, it's really funny. Yeah, I didn't laugh much, but I thought this was a really clever movie. And I liked everything about it except for Tony Hancock. (laughs) I I was (laughs) not familiar with him at all. And I guess I don't like his shtick. You never once believe that this guy is is the character that he's playing in this movie like i never think oh here's here's somebody who actually you know wants to be an artist no here's some comedian playing a guy who thinks he wants to be an artist and it's i thought he was unconvincing unfunny you know mugging a lot not mugging like jerry lewis it's not that style of humor but it's he's very it's got like a very self-satisfied style of of humor and i didn't think he was funny at all and anything that involved us laughing at his antics i wasn't amused by but the the satire of the artistic scene in paris was fantastic and really clever and and as you were saying yeah the movie is making fun of these bohemian types but it also understands that scene so much better than like as you said the beatniks or or the hippies in a lot of the american movies that we see that are you know these old people trying to pretend that they understand these these scenes in in any way this this movie clearly has a love for art and and bohemianism even though it's poking fairly brutal fun at them at a lot of times but it is there is this sort of old-fashioned idea about you know the purity of art and the you know art that's objectively better than other art and how the you know scenes can distract from the the actual quality of the art itself and that the scene can is pretty ridiculous for that reason and and the the fact that they're celebrating this awful artist for his uh, naivete is uh, not impossible, not not unrealistic. You know, I was thinking that if Peter Sellers had played Anthony Hancock, yes. it would have been brilliant. It would have been a perfect movie. So good. And, you know, very little would have needed to have been changed because Peter Sellers would have sold that character so well. You know, this sort of obliviousness. You wouldn't be seeing the this comedian behind the character who's who's just trying to make people laugh. He would have been 
totally convincing, perfect. And I mean, it does have sort of that Ealing style a little bit, but it's clearly a lower budget movie. And, you know, and it's referring back to movies like, you know, the Alec Guinness movie, The, the Horse's Mouth, where he's playing this curmudgeonly this, or awful uh, artist who's who's brilliant, but he's impossible for anybody to get along with. And it even refers like there's a big gag in, in The Horse's Mouth where the, the sculpture falls through the floor and uh, this movie references that scene with the, the sculpture falling through the floor, not once, not twice, three times. It, it repeats that gag. It was funny the third time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like, you know, just kind of a slapdash comedian vehicle, but there is some real, like, effort put into cleverness that I, I definitely appreciated about this movie. You know, it's no classic, but I, th- I think that Tony Hancock is the reason that <laughs> there's... You know, very little awareness of this movie. I'm not sure. You know, maybe he's beloved in England. Who who knows? But I feel like it could never really get uh, much of a following over here because this guy who it revolves around is not uh, doesn't have much appeal. I I don't hate Tony Hancock. I don't know why you hate him so much. I actually thought he was really funny. I mean, but I will say that the genius of this is not him. It's definitely the writing. Mm-hmm. And but his one liners, I thought, were really good. I mean, like I love like he's trying to talk to Paul about his art. And, and Paul says, oh, yeah, you mean your art was like misunderstood? And he's like, no, they just came out and said it. It was a load of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or like um, just the way like Paul's trying to describe the feeling of being a chair. And and Tony's like, ah, oh, yes, that wooden feeling, you know, like these sort of like this perfect little like one liners. And that, of course, like extends to all of the characters. Like, I love the existentialists in this where they they're like, we live in the moment. Why kill time when you can just kill yourself? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a perfect line. Uh, I love the, you know, it, but also like the gags, the, the you know, like the writing too. it's just like having an actual cow in his apartment and stuff like that. Like that kind of stuff is just like I, I love that kind of humor. It's just so stupid that it's funny. It, it loses me a bit when it's about like the the woman who's like throwing herself uh, on him. But I thought t- that was actually when Tony Hancock did like his best acting is when he's like there, there's a scene where she like corners him on a yacht and, you know, says like, you know, starts trying to make out with him and desperately trying to to bed him. And, and he's like, unhand me. You're someone else's wife and I'm British and like runs away. <laughs> Like, I just thought he plays that kind of stodgy British guy very well. I thought, you know, like that that beginning where he's on the train and everyone, you know, he's dressed in the same bowler hat and the same black outfit and, you know, suit and tie. I thought like that. Yeah, I totally saw him as as that kind of character. But otherwise, I do know what you mean. Like, he doesn't ever feel like an artist as much as someone who's having a lark, as it were. But I kind of want to know if he painted his own paintings because like I, they were like so good. <laughs> yeah, he probably did. There's no reason that, that he shouldn't have painted them himself. They were really great. Like there's this one gag where they compare everything like that Paul and like it's almost a montage where like Paul is painting something and then you see what Tony's painting. And it's meant to be that Paul has the good art and Tony has the bad art. But some of Tony's is like definitely better than Paul's. Like Paul's is like very, it, it, it to me looks very, um, now I'm going to do a, an art critique of this movie is that his, his artwork looked very like fresh out of college student art. You know, like it's mm-hmm. not that it was untalented. It was just like a bit bland. Whereas like 
you know, that there's this one, the, when they're, they're painting, they have this like, you know, naked lady in their apartment and they're, and they're painting this like reclining nude and they show Paul's and it's like very much, you know, one for one. And then they show Tony's and it's like freaking brilliant. It's, <laughs> it's the exact, you know, exactly what it is. And, and like, you know, it's just everything about it is off and like, it doesn't look like a human woman and it's just so good. <laughs> I like really, was really into it. There's definitely a cartoonishness about this movie that I could see would be really appealing to you. Live action cartoon. Live action cartoon, but also like I love like there's like this. It's like good art jokes. It's like actually like, you know, you understand why that kind of the the infantile artwork is actually like is a movement and like what's appealing about that and that kind of folk art versus, you know, college and, and learned and taught art. I thought like there's its own little kind of meta humor right there, even though it's not like even that much called out because like there is, I mean, there's a joke where everyone's just like, it's different. So all these fringe people are, are interested in that, you know, like they're not really, they don't care about his art as much as they just like the fact that he's doing something different, you know, cause they're all posers and they're all kind of phonies. But then the, you know, the critic is like, you know, this is shit. And he just like walks mm. away. Uh, you know, so it also helps like ground it. It never feels too magical. It's never like, you know, but he, like he in, in England, he's, uh, you know, considered crap. But here he's a genius. And it's like he isn't. He's only like a genius in this like total uh, circle of phonies. But as a living cartoon, I mean, like there's some really awesome art direction in this movie that actually kind of reminds me of how to succeed in business like that office building with everybody like you know everyone's in this diagonal of desks you know that's like totally surreal and strange and it's like only set up it's like how you would set it up on a stage to show like here's all these people that are moving in sync and you know they're all the same person you know and but it works it's like because everything like there's these touches of of just like silliness and, and staginess that feels abstract, but it also kind of reflects this art world that they're making, which reminded me, yeah, it reminded me of Artists and Models, the, you know, Martin and Lewis movie. I knew you were going to bring up Tashlin. Yeah, and Tashlin, big time. You know, it's definitely that that style of filmmaking, but way more clever. I mean, Artists and Models, I as much as I like Martin and Lewis, you know, as a team and it's not a bad movie at all. It's like there's quite a bit that I like about that movie, especially the way that it looks. But it's not. It has nothing to do with art, really. It's more about comic books, which is interesting, but it has nothing to do with art. But anyhow, I really like The Rebel, and I think you should totally watch it. And now I want to go back and, you know, watch all the sketch shows and listen to the radio stuff because I, I bet it rules. And, and the, again, like the writing on this was so sharp that, you know, it re actually reminded me a bit of A Hard Day's Night. Hmm. Not as absurd. But that level of humor. Yeah, definitely clever. I would watch the sketch comedy for the writing, but not for Tony Hancock. Now it's time to go through our top tens. I forget who started the last time. It was probably you. Uh, so I'll, I'll go through mine first. This is uh, my top ten movies from 1961 that we have watched on Cinema 60. Number one, The Innocents. Number two, Viridiana. Three is Paris Belongs to Us. Four, West Side Story. Five, Girl with a Suitcase. Six, A Woman is a Woman. Seven, One, Two, Three. Eight, Splendor in the Grass. Nine, La Notte. And ten, Something Wild. So only one movie that we watched for this episode ended up on here. And I was surprised because I liked quite a few of them, but it was a good year. A lot of my favorites came out in 61. Had to get them all on there. Whoa, we have wildly different top tens. Good. 
Though when it came to 10, I had like a basically a five way tie and then I, I just decided to make a choice. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. This is I'm going with my gut, Bart. I'm going with my gut. Go ahead. Do it. Number one, a woman is a woman. Uh, number two, Splendor in the Grass. Number three, Lenote. Number four, Divorce Italian Style. Number five, West Side Story. Number six, The Innocents. Number seven, one, two, three. I think that's the only thing that we have in common. Number eight, A Raisin in the Sun. Number nine, Wise Guys. And number 10, The Rebel. I went for it. Wow. I'm surprised Wise Guys made it. I wanted to put it on there, but I couldn't quite squeeze it in. That's a great movie. It was That was the only movie of his that I've liked so far, and I feel like I should reward him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, actually, we had a lot of the same movies, just in a different order. But like a really different order. I think the last time it was like pretty much like there was like things that were like flipped by like one or two spaces. Yeah. 1961. What a year. Yeah. And it was sort of interesting how a lot of the themes in these movies crossed over. I mean, we had a lot of stories that were set during World War II or began in World War II and were, you know, bring us to the current day or, or, Divorce Italian style goes, you know, makes references to things that happened before the war and uh, the paranoia in Paris Belongs to Us is all sort of this post-war, Cold War paranoia stuff. And uh, I mean, I guess that's 1961 for you. The, the war is still fresh in a lot of people's memories and enough time has passed where people are ready to talk about it in a more objective way. And uh, you've got scenesters or artists in Paris and the rebel and Paris belongs to us. That's actually a great double feature. Watch Paris belongs to us and then watch the rebel. (laughs) (laughs) Two very, very different takes on uh, similar milieu. I don't know. This was kind of my excuse to, to watch a bunch of satire, beloved satires that I've been trying desperately to figure out how to make it work. Like divorce Italian style, like I think was on my mind for, you know, episode one, basically. And I was trying to figure out when's the best time to use this. And how do we make like a whole, you know, episode on Commedia Italiano without like, you know, leaving stuff out. Like that's always a problem is, is coming up with only six movies. <laughs> we probably should just find a peak year for Commedia and, uh, yeah, do it by year. Start there and, and spread out from there. But yeah, I was, I was happy to watch it again. It's just, it's so good. Please watch it. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, please watch that movie. I was I was sure that was going to make my top 10. And then it just was uh, so actually sort of like eight and a half. That when we watched it for the Fellini episode, it's like, oh yeah, this is one of my absolute favorite movies. One of the best things I've ever seen. But then watching again, I was, I thought, well, there's a little less to this than I remember. Yeah, I mean, I definitely had that. My expectations were so high because of the fact that my expectations were so low when I first time I saw it. You know what I mean? And that's always mm-hmm. why I, I try to stagger rewatches because I, I hate having that feeling of like, oh, it's not as good because like it is as good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that like when I came in, I expected it to be awful because like, you know, it was about murdering your wife as a comedy. And I just like there's so many I thought it was going to be as misogynistic as as, you know, it's it's satirizing. And, and so when it wasn't, when it was like, uh, you know, blissfully smarter than than what I expected it to be, 
you know it was just like transcendent that's like my favorite kind of movie experience and and so like yeah like to go back with really high expectations and then realize like well it's really good but there was nowhere to go from you know it's like i was already up on the top so right but i still love it and at least we did manage to get one bad movie (laughs) in here which i i think uh that's that's sort of the downside of this format doing the top 10 is that we don't get to do bad movies but guns and navarone is uh (laughs) Neither of us liked. You're welcome. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.